You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It was the fall of 1907, and Ernest Shackleton was heading back to Antarctica. He had spent the previous three years trying to find his place in the modern world, dabbling in politics and journalism, but nothing really suited him. Thus, he went back to the one thing, exploration, and place, Antarctica, that made him feel more alive than anything he had ever experienced. Today, we are going to cover the first half of his next venture, which is called the Nimrod Expedition. It was not a big-budget affair like Discovery had been in 1901. No, Shackleton had been shunned by many in the old-school scientific and exploration world. Many felt that he should stay home and let Robert Falcon Scott, his now rival, have the field to himself. But Shackleton was having none of that. Not after Scott had disparaged Shackleton in his book. Instead, he was intent on proving his mettle to the world. With regards to his reasons, Shackleton would later write the following, Men go into the void spaces of the world for various reasons. Some are actuated simply by the love of adventure. Some have the keen thirst for scientific knowledge and others are drawn away from the trodden paths by the lure of little voices, the mysterious fascinations of the unknown. I think that in my own case, it was a combination of these factors that determined me to try my fortune once again in the frozen winds. I like this passage, even if it's not entirely true. Shackleton did not really care about the science of these enterprises, except to satisfy those who did care about it. And there is something missing from Shackleton's equation, and that's money. Like many who went on these ventures, It was a desire to find fame and fortune. He imagined coming back with a golden ticket, one that would make him rich and happy for the rest of his life. As for those other reasons, well, they were very true for Shackleton. He did have a love for adventure, and those little voices, as he calls them, were certainly a force in his life. It was a desire to prove that he could do something big in this world, plus have the opportunity to alleviate the boredom of the real world. One of the appeals of the Antarctic for Shackleton was the stark challenge in front of a man. In the cold polar regions, you solved problems or died. It was not some frivolous task, such as proofreading an article or entertaining a rich client. It was the raw challenge of survival. Shackleton had tasted those feelings, and he now yearned for them again after three years in England. This pull between civilization and exploration would always be a major conflict for Shackleton. He loved the concept of family, but the actual taking part in that world was something that he always struggled with. The truth is, Shackleton will never be particularly comfortable with family, and certainly not with the banality of family life. He would come home from traveling, vow to settle down, but become bored and distracted sooner than later. 
He had two young children, but it had not taken him long to cede much of the responsibility of raising them to his wife. It was a responsibility that was only going to grow now that Shackleton was headed back to Antarctica. He would be away for two, maybe three years. So all those things said, I have one note about this podcast before we start. You can check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, to see a map of today's adventures. And you'll find photos and a list of reference materials as well. I try to do this for all the shows, so check out the website if you want to learn more about this series. That is it for notes. Now it is time to get Ernest Shackleton to Antarctica. The Nimrod would depart from England on August 11, 1907. The small ship was slow and would take more than three months to reach New Zealand, arriving there on November 23rd. The ship, while old and small, would prove to be reliable, and Shackleton would later say this of the vessel, quote, My first impression hardly did justice to the plucky old ship. End quote. Now, Shackleton did not sail on Nimrod. He remained in England, raising money for the expedition. He would finally depart on October 31st, and upon his arrival in Australia, he would find his money troubles had followed him clear across the world. A couple of months earlier, a cousin of Shackleton's, William Bell, had managed to secure a 4,000-pound commitment for the expedition. However, upon reaching Australia, word would reach Shackleton that that investment had fallen through. He was suddenly in desperate straits, as he now needed thousands of pounds to fully provision the ship and pay the crew. He thus began to poke around for ways to raise some cash. And for that, he would turn to Edgeworth David, a 49-year-old professor of geology at Sydney University. David, who had been born in Wales but had spent the last 25 years in Australia, was a highly respected member of the scientific community. Now, for the expedition, Shackleton had two geologists, Raymond Priestley and Philip Brocklehurst, but these were youngsters, only 21 and 20 years old. Well, Shackleton, even before arriving in Australia, had been in contact with David and had proposed that he come on the Nimrod expedition. The professor would not overwinter on the continent, but would come back before the ice set in, likely by the 1st of March. In those couple of months, he would be able to do some studies on the continent. He was particularly interested in finding mineral reserves. But even more important, David would be a wise and experienced figure who could help provide focus and guidance to the younger scientists on the team. This idea appealed to Professor David. And when David saw Shackleton captivate a crowd of 4,000 at a lecture in Melbourne, or should we say Melbourne, he would be even more enthused. David was impressed by Shackleton's energy and enthusiasm and commitment to the endeavor. Thus, Professor David would agree to the proposal. This was a great coup for Shackleton in many ways. Edgeworth Davis was an outstanding scientist, and Shackleton liked the guy. The professor was a man of strong character and determination. His presence would bring gravitas and focus to the scientific portion of the Nimrod expedition, something it lacked. But another tremendous benefit of adding David was the man's connections to the Australian government. As I said, Professor David was a well-respected man, almost a legend in Australia. He would use his connections to petition the Australian government to provide financial support for Shackleton. The result was a 5,000-pound grant. This was huge, and it would hold off any fiscal problems for the time being. Also, as a result of this, Shackleton would add two other Australians to the expedition. The first was Douglas Mawson, a 25-year-old geologist and a former student of Edgeworth David. The second was Bertram Armitage, a 38-year-old former soldier who also had a Cambridge education. Armitage was specifically brought on board to handle the expedition's ponies and dogs. By the way, at the lecture I just mentioned in Melbourne, Shackleton handed all the profits over to charity. It was a common thing for him. He was forever donating the profits from events such as this to charities, even as his expedition desperately needed the funds. He loved being the hero, but at the same time, he was truly a compassionate man. One person said that his, quote, heart was bigger than his pockets, end quote. 
From Australia, Shackleton and his growing team would head to New Zealand and rendezvous with Nimrod. In New Zealand, the population, just like in Australia, was excited about Shackleton's expedition. Everyone loved the charming explorer. He was like a rock star. Shackleton was a much better interview than the sour Robert Falcon Scott, and he would expertly work the newspapers to prod the government to donate 1,000 pounds to the expedition. So, as the new year approached, the expedition prepared for the voyage south. Nimrod was packed with tons of supplies, and there was a critical shortage of space. And then, a week or so prior to the planned departure, Shackleton got some bad news. Nimrod could not carry enough coal to sail from New Zealand to Antarctica and back. The little ship had sails, but in the unpredictable southern waters, the steam engine was the most reliable and safe option. Nimrod had 5,000 miles of ocean ahead of her. Shackleton solved the problem by striking a deal to have a large steamship tow Nimrod to the ice packs surrounding Antarctica, thus conserving her coal. Once there, Nimrod would be cut loose and be on her own. And who would pay for all of this? Well, New Zealand's government agreed to cover half the costs, and the shipping company that would tow Nimrod agreed to cover the other half. In exchange, Shackleton agreed to have Nimrod conduct some magnetic and oceanographic studies. He had thus, again, dodged another major obstacle thrown in his path. On New Year's Day 1908, Nimrod would sail out of Littleton Harbor, which is not far from Christchurch, to the cheers of 30 to 50,000 spectators, depending on what source you read. She would be towed by the steamship Cunha, a 600-foot or 183-meter cable linked the two vessels. Nimrod was slow and overloaded. She carried tons of supplies and provisions as well as 40 men. Shackleton said that Nimrod moved, quote, like a reluctant child being dragged to school, end quote. The plan was for Nimrod to be towed in this fashion for 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers. Now, the waters between New Zealand and Antarctica are legendarily rough, and this would very quickly prove to be the case. Almost immediately, storms would engulf the two vessels. For ten straight days, Cunha chugged its way south, pulling Nimrod in its wake, the storms never abating. There were 100-foot waves, or 30 meters, and hurricane-force winds. Big kudos to Cunha and her captain, Frederick Evans. The man never gave up or asked to turn around. The voyage would be a miserable one for everybody. Even veteran sailors were seasick, and water swamped much of Nimrod, soaking people and supplies. One day the stoves got too wet to prepare hot meals, and the entire ship often smelled of vomit due to everyone getting sick. Douglas Mawson said it was so bad below deck, he slept in one of the covered lifeboats despite the storms raging around him. One of the nine dogs brought on the expedition would drown when water flooded a compartment, although another of the dogs would give birth to a litter of six puppies. It didn't help matters that the conditions on Nimrod were cramped. As an example, the ship's galley, the dining area, measured 12 by 9 feet, or 3.6 by 2.7 meters. For meals, 22 people would cram into that small room. The storms would eventually pass, and Cunha and Nimrod would, on January 14th, sight their first icebergs as they approached the edge of the Ross Sea. They were close to reaching the Antarctic ice pack. This meant it was time to transfer supplies from Cunha to Nimrod. This included 20 sheep brought to provide fresh meat for the expedition. The sheep were first slaughtered and the meat transferred to Nimrod. However, in the transfer, half the meat would be lost into the ocean. The next day, with huge icebergs to the south, Nimrod would cut the cord with its larger cousin. Cunha would head back to New Zealand and Nimrod was on its own. It was now time to head into the ice pack. There was probably no more dangerous time for the ship than at this moment. Nimrod had to negotiate into and through the ice pack. One wrong move or decision or a powerful storm could send the ship into an iceberg, and that could mean the end of everything. However, Nimrod would be in for some luck. The seas were calm, and Nimrod slowly but steadily wended its way through the icy maze, avoiding the massive bergs and submerged ice. 
In another stroke of luck, the ice pack would prove to be not that thick, and Nimrod would go through it and into open waters faster than any ship had ever recorded. Nine days later, the expedition would sight the Great Ice Barrier. Shackleton was now back in Antarctica. So from here, if the ship went west, they would reach McMurdo Sound. This is where Scott had built his camp on the Discovery Expedition. Ideally, Shackleton would go there and use the existing buildings for his winter quarters. However, as we discussed last time, he had agreed not to do that. Many people, including Scott, believed that the camp and the area around McMurdo Sound were off-limits to other explorers. Scott had scouted out the region, and they argued that it was his to exploit on his return voyage. Because of this agreement, Shackleton had initially planned to go east, to King Edward VII land, on the opposite side of the Great Ice Barrier, and set up his camp there. However, he had one other option, and that was a place called the Barrier Inlet, or Balloon Inlet. The inlet had been found by Discovery back in 1902, and was between McMurdo Sound and King Edward VII land, but closer to the latter. It went into the Great Ice Barrier 12 miles. On the Discovery expedition, the team had found some slopes that had allowed them to walk to the top of the barrier. It was called Balloon Inlet because this is where a hot air balloon had been launched, with Scott and Shackleton each taking a ride to more than 600 feet, or 185 meters. The inlet was enticing because it was about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, closer to the South Pole than the other potential camps. And with that in mind, Shackleton would elect to go there first instead of King Edward VII land. However, when Nimrod approached the inlet, they would find that it was gone. The ice had changed. Instead, they found that the inlet had merged with another area and had become a large bay filled with hundreds of whales. It was a stunning sight to see the great animals playing and blowing spouts of water. Shackleton was thrilled by the moment, saying that there was a freshness to it all. This was Antarctica. There were no worries about money or women or anything, just the challenge of the future. The Bay of Whales offered an interesting place to set up camp, mainly due to its proximity to the South Pole. However, there were serious concerns. The bay, which still exists, is constantly changing. Shackleton and the rest of the men saw great walls of ice and snow all around the natural harbor. The fear was that the surroundings were unstable. Who knew what would happen if a wall of ice collapsed or the ice below their feet opened and shifted? That could be a disaster. Thus, Shackleton elected to sail east toward King Edward VII land to find a spot to set up camp for the winter. However, within a day, Nimrod would be greeted by a wall of ice. King Edward VII land was inaccessible. That meant that they had to go back to the potentially unstable location of Balloon Inlet or to McMurdo Sound, which Shackleton had promised not to use. Shackleton would choose the latter, heading for McMurdo Sound on January 25th. He said he was heartbroken by the decision, but he had no choice. The expedition had to set up their winter camp and get the ship headed back to New Zealand by around March 1st, which gave them only four to five weeks. Otherwise, there was too much risk of Nimrod being iced in, and there were no guarantees that the little ship could survive such an experience. Shackleton would write to his wife about the decision, saying, quote, My conscience is clear, but my heart is sore. But I have one comfort that I did my best. End quote. However, Shackleton knew that he would be attacked for the decision back in England. Now, most of the crew agreed with and supported the decision. They didn't care about the petty squabbles of men like Shackleton and Scott. They knew their time was limited and they wanted to survive. Those scheduled to overwinter on land wanted to get their camp set up as soon as possible and the men on the ship wanted nothing to do with a winter in Antarctica. However, Eric Marshall, one of the expedition's two surgeons, was highly critical of the decision, calling Shackleton a liar and a double-crosser. He would write, quote, He, Shackleton, hasn't got the guts of a louse, end quote. Marshall believed that Shackleton had always intended to use McMurdo Sound as his base. 
Now, I do want to mention that the 28-year-old Marshall, while a valuable and effective member of the expedition, hated Shackleton and throughout his life took just about every chance he could to attack him. Of course, Marshall was the kind of guy that didn't like anyone. A very smart man, he was often described as arrogant and contemptuous of most people. So his vitriol needs to be looked at with a dose of skepticism. No matter, the decision was made. McMurdo Sound it was. Nimrod would cross from one side of the Great Ice Barrier to the other. The hope was to reach Hut Point, Scott's camp, on the southern tip of Ross Island and use that location as the base. However, while the location was easily accessed in 1902, this year it was completely iced in. The closest that Nimrod could get to Hut Point was 16 miles, or 24 kilometers. Thus, a new location would have to be found. A campsite would eventually be located at Cape Royds on Ross Island, about 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, north of Hut Point. It was a small natural harbor and would be fine for the team. Now came the rush to unload 180 tons of supplies and gear. And this would not be simple. It wasn't like Nimrod could just sail up to the beach, sit there indefinitely, and toss all the stuff onto the shore. There was ice everywhere, and the winds and currents made things tricky. Thus, Nimrod would have to unload all the crates and gear and equipment onto an ice flow. All that stuff would then have to be hauled over the sea ice, which was not always stable, to the shore. It was a slow and often dangerous process. In fact, while moving cargo, the expedition's second officer, Aeneas McIntosh, would have a hook strike him in the eye. Dr. Marshall would knock McIntosh out with some chloroform and extract the eye with a pair of scissors. McIntosh would survive the incident sans his eye. So, the big drama that emerged during all of this surrounded the captain of Nimrod, Rupert England, a 29-year-old officer in the Royal Navy Reserves. The problem was that Captain England insisted on extreme caution when unloading the supplies. He would sail up to a drop-off point, deposit some supplies, and then rush back out to sea the moment he felt conditions weren't perfect to stay that close to shore. And he became even more cautious when the ice conditions worsened. This drove everyone, especially Shackleton, crazy. On shore, the men were living in tents while they tried to set up their camp. Yet England refused to give in, even when Shackleton demanded he bring the ship close to the shore and Shackleton couldn't overrule him as a captain's word was the final say on the ship. England got so nervous about conditions, a few times he brought Nimrod out into the ocean 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, to avoid what he felt was a potentially dangerous situation. Frustrated by all this, Shackleton asked England to resign. When Captain England refused, Shackleton offered him financial incentives, including a percentage of the expedition's profits. None of it would work, and the two men clashed bitterly. There are even rumors that Shackleton threatened to assault the man. No matter, it was ugly. England, by the way, conceded that the pressure was overwhelming. He had never commanded a ship before this, and he was terrified of losing Nimrod. Most of the men were with Shackleton. Frank Wilde said that England had simply lost his nerve, and one of the Nimrod's officers called England unfit for command. Calmer heads, including Edgeworth David, would keep Shackleton from doing anything stupid, and by February 22nd, the gear and provisions needed were unloaded, and Nimrod was heading north to New Zealand. However, some stuff was left on board, such as coal. Only 18 tons were unloaded, but Shackleton had wanted 30 more tons. There had simply been not enough time to unload it all. Plus, England was reluctant to give Shackleton that much coal, for fear that Nimrod would not have enough to reach New Zealand. No matter the die was cast, Nimrod disappeared on the horizon, leaving 15 men as the only living souls on the entire continent. They could not expect a relief ship until next summer, and the world was not going to hear from Shackleton or his men for at least another year. It must have felt immensely lonely. Now, amongst those on the continent was Edgeworth David. As noted, David was not supposed to be part of the shore party, but the opportunity to spend a year in Antarctica was just too much for the man, and he elected to stay. 
Shackleton would pay the professor a hefty salary of 600 pounds, but it was worth it. David was now the official head of the scientific staff, and the expedition was better for his inclusion. David brought immediate respect to the scientific part of the expedition, and his participation would allow Shackleton to focus on the things he wanted to focus on, specifically a try at the South Pole. Now, before I go into the specifics about the Shackleton journey, his team, and their winter camp, I want to stay with Nimrod, which was now heading back to New Zealand. Well, there was a reckoning to be had regarding Captain Rupert England. Shackleton was so upset with the man, he sent along orders to have England replaced once the ship reached New Zealand. Of course, Shackleton didn't tell the man this to his face, instead letting those chips fall when he wasn't around. Shackleton asked for the expedition's second officer, Aeneas McIntosh, to bring the ship back the following summer, or get Captain Evans from the Cunha to do so. McIntosh, by the way, was the guy who had lost his eye in the accident. He was originally supposed to spend the winter in Antarctica, but due to the injury, he would go back to New Zealand and help prepare the ship for the return voyage. Anyhow, Captain Rupert England would get sacked on his return to port. He was upset by the decision and insisted that he had not had any sort of mental breakdown, as some suggested. He would not speak about the expedition ever again for the rest of his life. Now, in addition to England's removal, there were some authorities upset that Nimrod had not conducted the magnetic and oceanographic task that Shackleton had agreed to do in exchange for financial support. Unfortunately, the long process of finding a suitable location for their camp and then unloading all the supplies had prevented Nimrod from carrying out these tasks. This would lead some to question the financial investment in Shackleton and the expedition, both in Australia and New Zealand, as well as in Great Britain. And speaking of Great Britain, let's bring our story to the other side of the world. Their word of dissension within the expedition would spread throughout the scientific and exploration community, some people giddy at the rumored disputes between Shackleton and England. But the big bombshell was the news that Shackleton had set up his camp at Cape Royds on Ross Island in McMurdo Sound. In private, many people were upset, calling Shackleton a liar and a turncoat and a villain. However, in public, most people's response was measured. They did not want to attack Shackleton because if they did so, and he actually came home a success, well, that would just be awkward. So most people acknowledged the difficulties that Shackleton was facing and kept their public criticisms to a minimum. But as I said, in private, the knives were out. Robert Falcon Scott was furious at what he viewed as a betrayal by Shackleton, and he fretted over the possibility that his rival would actually reach the South Pole. Now, I do want to mention the always tenuous financial situation of the Nimrod expedition. Shackleton had raised enough money to get the thing going, but there was not enough to get it done. Nimrod needed to return next year to Antarctica. To get that to happen, money was needed to pay the crew, make repairs, and purchase fuel and supplies. In England, the unenviable task of dealing with financial matters fell on Herbert Dorman, Shackleton's brother-in-law. Dorman took the job without realizing the mess Shackleton had left things in. After going through the books, he determined he needed another £7,000 to cover expenses. This included £1,300 to pay bills in London, plus another £2,500 to refit and provision Nimrod in New Zealand, and they would need to pay the ship's crew. What Dorman didn't realize was that the expedition was in even more debt than he believed, as Shackleton had brought on Edgeworth Davis to the team and had promised bonuses and raises to some of the other men. One of the first people that Dorman turned to for more money was William Beardmore. It was then that Dorman found out that Shackleton had skipped town without paying the £1,000 he had owed the man. Beardmore was not pleased. Despite all of this, others would help out. One of Shackleton's most ardent supporters, Elizabeth Dawson Lampton, would come through with an additional £1,000 and the Dorman family would step up as well. One of Emily's sisters would donate £500. Shackleton was blessed to have Herbert Dorman in his corner. 
The man bore the brunt of angry creditors, all the while trying to raise funds to actually bring Shackleton and his team home. In the end, the generosity of the Dorman family, plus a few other donors, such as Elizabeth Dawson Lampton, as well as many smaller donations and some loans, would be enough to make things work. When it came time for Nimrod to head back to Antarctica, she would be ready, although with a different captain. With that, let's return to Shackleton and his team at Cape Royds, where the expedition members were constructing the hut that would be their home for the next year. The hut, which had been brought in prefabricated sections, would measure 33 by 19 feet, or 10 by 6 meters. There were eight small cubicles for the team members, two men per space. Only Shackleton got his own cubicle. There was gas for lighting and coal for the stoves. A stable would be built for the ponies, which, due to a number of factors, now numbered only seven. Now, the weather was mild enough to allow for the team to do some exploration and experiments. One thing that was tested out was the 15-horsepower motor car that Shackleton had brought along. The car had been designed by one of William Beardmore's companies, and there was even a man dedicated to the driving and maintenance of the vehicle, Bernard Day, who was employed by Beardmore. The first attempt to use the car ended when it was stuck in some slushy snow after only going a few feet. Subsequent tests demonstrated that it worked fine when it was on solid ice, but in slush or snow, it tended to bog down. I will mention the vehicle a few times in this story, but know that it will essentially be a non-factor for the expedition. In early March, Edgeworth David would come to Shackleton with an idea. With the weather still cooperating, he pointed to Mount Erebus, which was on Ross Island, and suggested a team climb to the top. Mount Erebus, which rises to 12,448 feet, or 3,794 meters, is the sixth highest mountain on the continent. It is also an active volcano. The idea of climbing Erebus appealed to Shackleton. If his team could reach the top of the mountain, it would be a significant feather in their cap. The group selected for the climb included Professor David, Jameson Adams, who was the expedition's second-in-command, Drs. Eric Marshall and Alistair McKay, plus Douglas Mawson and Philip Brocklehurst, both geologists. The team would set out on March 5, 1908. They had no proper climbing gear, and none of the men had any mountaineering experience. They brought with them 560 pounds, or 250 kilos, of provisions on a man-hauled sledge, enough for six days. The ascent was, luckily, not that difficult for the inexperienced climbers. It didn't take much time for them to figure out that hauling a sledge loaded with a quarter ton of supplies was not the easiest thing, and thus the sledge was quickly abandoned. Each man loaded up 40 pounds of gear, or 18 kilograms, including food, a stove, a tent, and sleeping bags. On the ascent, Brocklehurst would be forced to stop due to severe altitude sickness. He would elect to wait for the team to reach the summit and hook back up with them on the return march. Thus, Brocklehurst would spend his 21st birthday sitting on the slopes of Mount Erebus. The rest of the team would continue on and reach the summit of Erebus on March 10th. The six men would return to camp and be met with cheers. Shackleton was thrilled and had champagne broken out. The ascent was a great way to start the expedition. Even if they did nothing else, they had this to boast about. Now, there was one issue with the ascent, and that was Brocklehurst. The young man had developed frostbitten feet while on the slopes, and eventually one of his big toes would have to be amputated. Shackleton would give the young man his cubicle while he recovered. Now, while the climb to the top of Erebus was significant, you may have noticed something that was missing, and that was Ernest Shackleton. You are probably wondering why Shackleton would pass on the chance to get a piece of glory. It seemed so unlike him, and that's true. Well, Dr. Marshall suspected that the reason Shackleton stayed behind was his health. Shackleton, if you remember, had suffered some health issues on the last expedition. But before going on the trek to the South Pole, Marshall had insisted that Shackleton take a physical. He said that Shackleton had a heart murmur. 
Marshall suspected that Shackleton didn't want to climb Erebus for fear of what it might do to his heart and lungs. As for Shackleton, he never really says anything about the subject, but he would dismiss Marshall's concerns, saying it was just a bit of asthma. To alleviate any concerns about his health, Shackleton later gave Marshall a letter exonerating him of any blame for any health problems that arose. So with the Erebus climb complete, there would be other excursions and projects. However, one of the bigger and most important tasks would have to be put off until later, as there just wasn't enough time. For the journey south toward the pole, Shackleton planned to follow a similar path as to what was taken back in 1902. To help accomplish this, he wanted to place some supply depots along the route. He had hoped to do this before winter set in, but that wasn't going to happen. The cautious approach to unloading Nimrod by Captain England had meant that it was later in the season than Shackleton had desired. To send men out onto the Great Ice Barrier for upwards of a month was risky this late in the season. Thus, Shackleton would put it off until later. Otherwise, with winter approaching, it was time for the 15 members of the Nimrod expedition to prepare for four months of long, dark days. As noted, the team had one building for all the men. Shackleton knew that he had to keep these men healthy and positive for them to be ready to set out next summer. That would not be easy. The first issue was nutrition. Shackleton had seen what a bad diet had done to the men on the Discovery Expedition, thus he was prepared this time around. To avoid scurvy, fresh seal and penguin meat would be stocked up, and there were 27 cases of lime juice. Also, the variety of foods brought was much more diverse and better than the Discovery Expedition. Shackleton didn't want the men eating the same awful meals day after day. Thus, there would be things such as roast reindeer and exotic desserts. This would help the men physically as they ate better, but it would also help them mentally. They couldn't focus their frustrations on the same terrible food. Also, with regards to food, the task of cooking meals was shared by all the men, even Shackleton, who most people didn't want to cook because he was said to be a terrible chef. As a note, the expedition's team members would emerge from the winter of 1908 much healthier than their counterparts had been in 1902. And it wasn't just scurvy, it was the simple fact that the men were, all around, in better physical condition because of the diverse diet Shackleton had insisted on. The second issue facing the men was boredom and isolation, and without question, some of the men struggled with it more than others. Frank Wilde, one of Shackleton's closest friends, would drink too much, and Bertram Armitage would suffer through some serious bouts of depression. But Shackleton knew that the men needed to be engaged or else they would fall into bad habits. It was a challenge he had dealt with on the Discovery Expedition. As before, he had the men organize theatrical shows, poetry readings, and other entertainment. Shackleton had even brought along a gramophone, and thus music was constantly playing, a welcome respite from the steady howl of the wind outside their small shelter. Another big project for the men was the printing press. On the Discovery Expedition, Shackleton had published a newsletter every month, a way to entertain and engage the crew. Well, this time, he had something more ambitious in mind. He had brought along a printing press, and he wanted to publish a book. To do so, before departing England, Shackleton had sent Ernest Joyce and Frank Wilde on a crash course in printing and typesetting. In their cubicle, which they called the Rogue's Retreat, they set up their press. The result was the Aurora Australis, a 120-page book featuring 10 articles, including two by Shackleton, who was also the editor. George Marston, who was the expedition's artist, would provide sketches and lithographs. 100 copies of the book would be produced in Antarctica, and it was not easy. Wilde and Joyce would sometimes have to place candles under the ink plate of the press or the ink would freeze. Also, no two of the books were alike, because each copy was bound with boards from packing cases backed with sheepskin. Thus, each book had a different interior cover. One book might say kidney soup, while the next would say Irish stew, or whatever had been in that specific crate. 
Bernard Day, the car mechanic, did the binding. Aurora Australis would be the first book written, edited, illustrated, printed, and bound in Antarctica. Now, another note I want to make about the social life of the men was that, unlike most past expeditions such as this, there was no accommodation for class and rank. To Shackleton, that only created cliques and resentments. Shackleton was simply called the boss by everyone. Philip Brocklehurst, the young geologist, was actually a lord, Sir Philip Brocklehurst, but the title was not used in these quarters. This lack of class designation extended to duties as well. Cooking I already mentioned, but when it came time to shovel coal, feed the animals, or clean the mess, everyone did their share, including Shackleton. This is something that really set our Irish explorer apart from most of these kinds of expeditions. He disliked the social and military hierarchy that dominated these endeavors, and he despised how men, like Robert Falcon Scott, expected and even demanded respect and obedience without giving the men a reason for asking for such things. Thus he would, for the rest of his life, work to earn the respect of his men. He is the guy who will get up early and make coffee and bring it to each man. He'll sit down and talk to these same men and make sure things are going well and their concerns are being addressed. Now, some people would feel that these gestures were just for show, a cheap and easy way to score points with the men. It doesn't cost a lot to listen. No matter, many of the team had never had a leader like Shackleton, and they would love him for it. In the end, Shackleton simply had a way about him that helped the men manage to get through a difficult four months. He wasn't overbearing, he was tactful and attentive, and really worked to make everyone, whether a titled lord or a common seaman or an academic, feel comfortable and at home, despite the difficult conditions. For Shackleton, he was at his best in these situations. He had things to do. It occupied and engaged him. He was never bored. When he had free time, he often read. He loved Kipling, Browning, and other poets. In fact, Michael Smith, who wrote the biography Shackleton by Endurance We Conquer, said that poetry was Shackleton's, quote, emotional anchor, end quote. So I am not going to go through anything more about the winter in Antarctica. Instead, let's talk about Shackleton's plans for next summer, including his push for the South Pole. The latter was, after all, the great prize that he sought. Now, I'll get to these plans in a moment, but I do want to detail the expectations for the scientific team. This included two things. First and foremost, there would be a team that would try and reach the magnetic South Pole. This location was to the northwest of their base. Second, another group would head into the western mountains to obtain geological samples. Okay, that done, let's talk about the expected expedition to the South Pole. This was the adventure that pretty much everyone wanted to be a part of. It was the one that would make people famous. Shackleton's initial plan was to set up a supply depot to the south of Cape Royds. Also, Scott's old base at Hut Point, 20 miles to the south, would be used as a depot as well. These depots would take several weeks to set up. Once established, a team would then be able to set out for the pole. The target departure date was late October. Shackleton envisioned taking six men along with six ponies, each of the ponies pulling a sledge. The motor car would be used as well, but how long it would last was anyone's guess. Now, this plan would go awry that winter when three of the expedition's seven ponies died. This happened when they ate volcanic sand. This was a major blow to Shackleton's plans. He would have to trim his team down to four men instead of six, since the four remaining ponies could not haul enough supplies for six men. Now, there was one other option, and that was the dogs. There were eight of them, plus some puppies. However, Shackleton never considered using them, as they were seen as difficult to handle. The dogs would essentially become camp pets. They were probably most valuable as therapy animals to the men. The decision not to use dogs was a mistake, and I'll talk a bit more about that later when we see how the ponies perform on the Great Ice Barrier. 
No matter, with that, Shackleton now had to select the four men who would make a run at the South Pole. He would, of course, be one of the four. Two men under serious consideration would not be selected due to health reasons. One was Ernest Joyce, who, along with Frank Wilde, was a veteran of the Discovery Expedition. Joyce was an abrasive man, but very effective at whatever he did. He was the kind of guy you'd want on a difficult venture. However, Dr. Marshall noted that Joyce had a liver problem and early signs of heart disease. Thus, he would be kept at camp. The other person not considered was Brocklehurst. The young man, had he been healthy, would have been a good candidate for the pole run due to his youth. But he had lost his toe early in the year to frostbite, and he was not up for such a journey. Shackleton would settle on Frank Wilde, a tough and hard-working sailor, and a man Shackleton could trust, as well as Jameson Adams, the expedition's second-in-command. Adams had led the climb on Mount Erebus. The fourth and final spot on the team would be Dr. Eric Marshall. There were two doctors amongst the 15 team members, and Shackleton wanted one on each of the major expeditions. The 29-year-old Marshall was a big, strong man, ideal for hauling a sledge. He was also the cartographer, so he would be relied on to direct the team. As noted, Marshall was not well-liked within the expedition, and Shackleton likely felt it was best to keep Marshall with him, rather than let him sow dissent within the magnetic South Pole team. This is something you will see with Shackleton. While he was happy to rid himself of malcontents, that wasn't always possible. And what you'll find is that instead of antagonizing men like Marshall, he keeps them close at hand, and he'll give them important duties to occupy them and make them feel good about their role. This would keep them from spreading discontent amongst the rest of the men. It was a difficult game that Shackleton would play, but it would usually work. So the first step to getting the South Pole team going was to set up the supply depots along their path. This would save them from having to haul as many provisions on the actual trek inland. On September 22nd, six men would make a 140-mile, or 225-kilometer, trek onto the Great Ice Barrier. They would first go to Hut Point, about 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, from the camp and place some supplies. By the way, the motorized car was brought along, but it would only make 8 miles, or 13 kilometers, before conking out. The ponies were left behind to preserve their health. Thus, the men pulled the sledges loaded with 170 pounds, or 77 kilograms. From Hut Point, they would head out onto the Great Ice Barrier, setting up what was called Depot A, 140 miles from Camp Royds. They would get back to camp after three weeks, having covered 280 miles on the round trip, all through severe weather conditions. Now, the first exploration team to actually depart would not be Shackleton's, but instead the men making an attempt to reach the magnetic South Pole. This group included the team's scientific director, Edgeworth David, geologist Douglas Mawson, and Dr. Alistair McKay. The party was to try to reach the magnetic South Pole, which was actually northwest of their camp in what is called Victoria Land, as well as to carry out a geological survey of a place called the Dry Valley area. As a note, the magnetic South Pole actually moves, so it's not like you can look at a map today and say, hey, there's the magnetic South Pole, and know where the three men were off to. Anyhow, the three would depart on October 3rd, 1908. All their supplies would be hauled by the men on sledges. No ponies or dogs for them. Now, I will come back to the South Magnetic Pole team in our next episode, after we cover Shackleton's journey. But know that they will have a pretty epic journey themselves. They will be gone for 122 days and travel 1,260 miles, or 2,025 kilometers. Again, details on it next time. As a side note, two other men, Raymond Priestley and Bertram Armitage, would go off into the Western Mountains to do some long-term geological research. And that gets us back to Shackleton eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The four-man team of Shackleton, Adams, Wild, and Marshall would depart on October 29th. They would have four ponies, each pulling a sledge loaded with 600 pounds of provisions and gear. It would be enough for three months. The men were about 860 miles, or 1,375 kilometers, from the South Pole. Only the first 300 miles or so, or 480 kilometers, had been traversed. And let's not forget, getting to the pole was only half the journey. You still have to get back, so double that mileage. The hope was that the great white expanse of the barrier extended all the way to the South Pole, making for a relatively easy run, but no one really knew. On the previous farthest south journey, Shackleton had spied mountains in the distance, but who knew what really lay in their path? A couple of notes. First, the plan was to travel roughly 19 miles or 30 kilometers a day, which was really ambitious. The Discovery team had averaged less than 7 miles a day on their journey. Shackleton wanted to go nearly three times the distance that Scott had gone, which, like I said, was very ambitious. Second note, the men were in better physical condition compared to the Discovery team. Due to the efforts of Shackleton and the expedition's doctors, scurvy was not an issue, and it will never be an issue. Third note, a support party, including the motorized car, would depart with Shackleton's team, pulling another sledge. But the plan was for them to go only about 70 miles, or 110 kilometers, before returning to base camp. In front of the men, Shackleton expressed nothing but confidence. Philip Brocklehurst said, quote, Shackleton was so enthusiastic and so confident in his own ability that he didn't leave us much to think about other than success, end quote. However, in private, Shackleton prepared for the worst. He would write a letter to Emily, saying that if he died, quote, your husband will have died in one of the few great things left to be done, end quote. So Shackleton, Wild, Marshall, and Adams would set out, along with the support party, at 10 a.m. on October 29th. Shackleton would say it was, quote, a glorious day for our start, end quote. However, things would quickly turn not so glorious. Within an hour, one of the four ponies came up lame, and the entire team had to slow their pace. And then another of the ponies would kick Jameson Adams, cutting his knee to the bone. Need more? Well, the motorized car would get stuck in the snow and have to be taken back to base. On day two, the men would reach Hut Point, about 20 miles south of Cape Royds. Here, the men would take up residence in the huts for a few days, allowing the lame pony and Adams to recover. On November 3rd, the expedition stepped out onto the Great Ice Barrier, a vast white plain before them. Now, walking on the barrier would prove to be a challenge for the Manchurian ponies. First, when they were on solid ice, they were not very comfortable. It's not something they were accustomed to doing. Thus, they often fell. At times when it was really bad, the men would have to cut steps in the ice, so the ponies had a spot to step in that wasn't slick. The second issue was their weight. These horses were heavy, probably around 800 pounds or so, or 360 kilograms, and easily sank in the snow. It was not uncommon for the snow to go up to their bellies. This brings us to the horse versus dog question. While the horses will be very valuable, they are no match for well-trained sledge dogs. The weight-bearing hoof of a horse is four to five times heavier than a dog. And when you're out on snow and ice, the ramifications of that are pretty easy to figure out. Some other things about dogs versus horses. 
A horse will sweat through all parts of its body, while a dog sweats through panting and through its paws. When working hard, the horses would get coated in sweat. In the freezing environment, this made them miserable. It was just not healthy for them, and it demonstrates how adept sledge dogs were to the environment. Another thing was the fact that the horses were terrified of staying out at night in the dark, exposed to the bitter cold and the harsh winds. They frequently didn't eat, which only made them weaker. Now, regarding the horses and food, here's something else about using ponies. They need a lot of food, 10 pounds a day each, to be specific. And as there's no sign of grass to graze on in Antarctica, that means you have to bring that food. This negates a lot of the horses can haul more stuff than dogs argument. When a large percentage of what your horse is hauling is its own food, well, that's problematic. By the way, the horses were fed a meat-based ration specially developed for the expedition. It consisted of dried beef, carrots, milk, currants, and sugar. Another note I want to mention is regarding skis. Despite having used them on the Discovery Expedition, even if just a bit, Shackleton would not use them. Again, this was short-sighted. I read that the pressure of a person wearing skis on snow is about half a pound per square inch. For a man walking on snow, it's more than two pounds of pressure per square inch. Thus, instead of gliding across the snow, the men of the expedition were sinking into it. So on to the great ice barrier went Shackleton and his team. The next destination was Depot A. Now, halfway between the camp and the supply depot, Shackleton would stop and take the supplies being hauled by the support team and set up a cache for the return journey. This would allow the support team to return to base. They would give Shackleton and his men three great cheers of encouragement as they headed off. Going forward, it was now Shackleton, Marshall, Wild, and Adams. On November 4th, a week since departing Cape Royds, the skies would grow gray as storms threatened. It would get so dark they would have to travel by compass. And then on November 6th, a blizzard would hit. It would keep the men in the tents for three days. The issue with this was that the food supply was already tight. Every day spent doing nothing took away from their reserves. With that in mind, Shackleton would order food rations cut. Food meant for seven days was now stretched to ten, meaning they would add another 20 days to their supply. That's a good thing, as Shackleton knew that they would need it, but lowering their food intake would cause the men to get weaker and make them susceptible to other problems. By the way, regarding the living situation of Shackleton and his men, there were two tents. Shackleton decided to rotate tent partners each week. This was a wise thing, as it helped keep the team members from forming two groups that may be pitted against one another. Shackleton felt that men in these situations needed fresh perspectives from time to time. It helped people with bad attitudes from feeding off each other's negativity. As with life at Cape Royds, the men shared responsibilities, including feeding the horses and cooking. At night, the men would read to one another or to themselves. They had brought a variety of books, with Shackleton favoring Shakespeare or poetry. After the blizzard passed, the four men would push on. The big issue was the soft surface of the Great Ice Barrier. It was simply difficult to plow through for both men and ponies. However, when conditions firmed up, the ponies performed quite well. There was, however, one near disaster when, on November 9th, one of the horses almost crashed through the ice and went into a crevasse, taking with it the sledge and all the cooking gear. Thankfully, the disaster was narrowly averted, but it demonstrated just how quickly things could go wrong. The team would push on, making good distance during the middle of the month, 15 to 17 miles a day, or 24 to 27 kilometers, as the ice firmed up. The expedition would reach Depot A on November 15th. However, the recent progress couldn't hide the truth that the team was going too slow. At this pace, they would not reach the South Pole and return on the food that they had available to them. On November 21st, Frank Wilde wrote in his journal that he was worried that the task before them was impossible, 
saying that they might reach the South Pole, but they would never make it back. It was also on the 21st that the team would have its first loss. One of the ponies, named Chinaman, would become so weak that it could not continue, thus it would have to be shot. Shackleton, like his old boss, Robert Falcon Scott, disliked the sight of blood, and Marshall and Adams refused to do the deed. Thus, the task of shooting the pony fell to Frank Wilde. Marshall, a surgeon, would slice up the pony, giving the team an abundance of fresh meat, which was critical to their diet. The next day, Shackleton would set up Depot B, leaving 80 pounds of horse meat, plus some oil and biscuits for the return journey. To mark the spot, flags were planted. However, Shackleton had the sense to build mounds of snow, 6 to 7 feet high, or 2 meters, to help mark the location. No matter, the depots would be difficult to spot if there was a blizzard or a thick haze. The four men and three ponies would push on, Shackleton veering slightly to the east of the previous route. This was because to the west was a mountain range, and as the ice barrier came into contact with the range, the ice often shifted and moved, making it unpredictable and dangerous. Now, it was at this time that Jameson Adams would develop a rather unique physical problem, and that was a toothache. It got so bad, Marshall would extract the tooth, despite not having dental equipment. Another issue affecting the men was snow blindness. Now, snow blindness can have serious long-term effects on a person. However, it usually clears up. For the men of the expedition, this typically meant eye pain, headaches, and distorted vision. The main treatment was to rub into the eye a cocaine-laced ointment which dulled the pain. On November 26th, Shackleton would have something to celebrate when the team would reach a new farthest south point, besting his rival, Robert Falcon Scott. Shackleton had accomplished this record in just 29 days. It had taken Scott 59 days to reach this point back in 1902. Shackleton must have taken great satisfaction from that. Now, we should note that Shackleton had horses to help him, and he and his men were in better physical condition. And it didn't hurt that the team was covering known ground. The achievement left the men in good spirits. Shackleton called it a, quote, day to remember, end quote. And Marshall, a chronic pessimist, said it was, quote, not bad going, end quote. Shackleton broke out a bottle of orange curacao, a liqueur, to celebrate. Still, despite reaching a new farthest south record, the men were not going fast enough. They were only averaging about 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, a day. This is because some days the conditions made the going slow, and other days were spent in a tent just waiting out a storm. They were going to need to pick up their pace. Going forward, food would be a major issue. The men were lucky to consume 3,000 calories a day. That's fine for a person in normal conditions, but these weren't normal conditions. They were working hard, and their bodies were trying to stay warm. They probably needed at least twice the amount of food that they were taking in. It would not take long for Shackleton to say, quote, We are very hungry these days, and we know that we are likely to be for another three months. End quote. No matter, the team pressed on. On November 28th, another of the ponies, named Grizzy, would be put down when it could not go any further. A few days later, a third pony, Quan, would meet a similar fate. Both ponies were shot by Wild and cut up for fresh meat. At this point, the team was down to two sledges and 1,200 pounds of provisions. The final pony, named Sox, would pull one of the sledges while the men handled the second. This meant that Shackleton and the men would get weaker and hungrier from the hard work. So the men moved south across the Great Ice Barrier, but it was becoming apparent to them that the terrain was changing. The ice beneath them was no longer flat. In his book, Shackleton, By Endurance We Conquer, Michael Smith wrote this about the terrain, saying, quote, The surface, billiard table flat for over 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, had also developed wide undulations like ocean waves frozen in time. Some were a mile wide, and each furrow was filled with snow, making the going even more demanding, end quote. What Smith describes was what happens when the Great Ice Barrier comes to an end and meets the continent, 
and that will mean mountains. Shackleton had caught a glimpse of them in the distance six years earlier, but he had hoped to avoid them. But that was not going to happen. As the men moved south, the mountains to the right veered east and were now in their path. What they saw before them were the outlines of the Transantarctic Mountains. The Transantarctic Mountains go across the entirety of Antarctica, from Cape Adair in Victoria Land to the Weddell Sea on the other side of the continent, forming a 2,200-mile, or 3,500-kilometer, boundary between West and East Antarctica, some of the mountains as high as 14,000 feet, or 4,265 kilometers. This is what was before Shackleton and his team. It was either find a way through the mountains or turn around. The latter was not an option at this point. Studying the horizon, Shackleton and his men saw what they thought was the mouth of a glacier coming out of the mountains. If so, it could provide a potential path forward. Shackleton decided to climb a small mountain, which rose to a height of about 3,000 feet, or 915 meters, to get a better view of the situation. The four men would leave the horse at the camp to guard things and rope themselves together for the climb. It was not an easy journey. Getting to the foot of the mountain meant negotiating wide crevasses some hundreds of feet deep. After about eight hours, they would reach the summit, and before them they saw a massive glacier leading into the mountains. Shackleton would say, quote, There burst upon our vision an open road to the south. End quote. Marshall added, quote, The Almighty has indeed been good to us. End quote. He would then add a description saying, quote, A glacier extended as far as the eye could reach, flanked on either side by rugged ice covered mountains. End quote. This was a route up into the mountains and onto the Antarctic Plateau, and it is, in reality, probably Shackleton's greatest discovery as an explorer. The glacier, which is one of the largest valley glaciers in the world, climbs into the mountains 7,200 feet, or 2,200 meters. It is 25 miles, or 40 kilometers wide, and 125 miles long, or 190 kilometers. It is essentially a frozen waterway between two mountains going from the Great Ice Barrier to the Antarctic Plateau. The men called the glacier the Golden Gateway. It is one of only two passes that could be used to cross the Transantarctic Mountains on foot. Shackleton would dub his new discovery, Beardmore Glacier, after his most generous benefactor, William Beardmore, although some whispered that it was named for a different Beardmore, a.k.a. Elsbeth. By the way, the little mountain Shackleton had climbed to spy the glacier would be named Mount Hope. Some speculate that it was named after a young woman named Hope Patterson, who Shackleton was close friends with and may have had an affair with several years earlier. In fact, Shackleton would later send her a small rock in a silver casing. Inscribed on it were the coordinates of Mount Hope. No matter, the path toward the pole was there. It just now had to be followed. Now, Shackleton may have identified his way to the pole, but the downside is he's got to cross a mountain range. As noted, it's a 7,200-foot, or 2,200-meter, ascent, and they still had to get to the foot of the glacier, climb up several thousand feet. It was a gradual rise, but it was dangerous territory as the landscape was a maze of crevasses. The men frequently had to use snow bridges to cross the crevasses, each crossing a leap of faith. With the warming weather, the bridges could give out at any time. As the men moved up into the mountains, there was also the threat of avalanches from both sides. The cliff walls rose up as high as 2,000 feet, or 600 meters, on both sides. Rocks, some as heavy as 40 tons, and snow and ice could come down at any moment and Shackleton saw many spots where this had happened, the surface looking like a great explosion had taken place. Shackleton wrote of this, quote, One feels that at any moment some great piece of rock may come hurtling down. Providence will look over us tonight, for we can do nothing more. End quote. Thus, the team would try to stay in the middle of the glacier, but wending their way through the many crevasses often drove them dangerously close to the rock walls. Another issue that arose as the men gained altitude was the sun. It scorched the glacier's surface, making it quite hot at times. 
This made the snow slushy and difficult to pull the sledges through. Socks the pony pulled one sledge as the men pulled the other. At times, the men would have to unload the two sledges and carry the provisions, as well as the sledges themselves, through a slushy section or an unstable crevasse. Plus, there were increased issues with snow blindness as the sun reflected off the ice and snow's surface. Shackleton, who led the way more than not, would alternate covering up one of his eyes to limit their exposure. Still, the men suffered from blurry vision and bad headaches. On December 6th, another depot would be established, more supplies cached for the return journey. And then, the next day, the expedition's final pony, Socks, would die when a snow bridge collapsed under his hooves, sending him into a deep crevasse, killing him instantly. The fall almost dragged the sledge Socks was pulling with him into the crevasse, but the tack, the straps connecting him to the sledge, snapped. The sledge had much of the team's food, plus two of the four sleeping bags. If it had been lost, Shackleton would likely have had to turn around, and their survival would have been questionable. The collapsing snow bridge almost took Frank Wilde into the crevasse as well, but he managed to hang on to the sledge and avoid a fall that would have almost assuredly meant his death. Sox's loss further stung as the meat the horse would have provided was now gone, although the remnants of the pony feed could now be used to supplement the men's rations. I want to note that the loss of the 800-pound socks only reinforces the dangers of bringing horses into this environment. This kind of thing was far less likely to happen with dogs. So, up Beardmore Glacier, the men went, pulling the two sledges, about 1,000 pounds, or 450 kilograms, of provisions themselves. It was brutal work, and as the hunger pains increased and the frustrations mounted, the men became increasingly irritated. Wild became convinced that Adams and Marshall weren't doing their share of the work, and there were arguments. Adams, Wilde felt, just wasn't cut out for the task. And as for Marshall, Wilde believed he was deliberately slacking. He would write, quote, I sincerely wish he, Marshall, would fall down a crevasse a thousand feet deep, end quote. Marshall was the moodiest and most unpredictable of the men. He didn't like Shackleton and felt the others were combining against him. The latter was sort of true because no one liked Marshall, so he just took it as fact that they were all against him. In fact, Wilde and Adams, while they had respected Shackleton prior to the beginning of the expedition, were now firmly in Shackleton's camp. They admired him and believed in him. The boss never slacked off and was always in front, pulling the hardest for the longest time. They were his men. However, Marshall really headed out for Shackleton. In his writings, he was brutal. He just eviscerated Shackleton, calling him a crook and a fraud. He would maintain this pose all of his life, dismissing Shackleton and insinuating all sorts of missives about the man. By December 16th, the men had gone about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, up the glacier, reaching an altitude of 6,000 feet, or 1,825 meters. They were about 350 miles from the pole. By the way, going up Beardmore Glacier, Shackleton took to naming landmarks after family, friends, and other team members. Wild, Marshall, and Adams all got mountains named after them, and there was Mount Dorman after Emily's family. There was one peak that Shackleton called Mount Donaldson, reportedly after Isabel Donaldson, whom he had met in New Zealand the previous year, another of Shackleton's rumored dalliances. Anyhow, at this time, Shackleton decided to establish another depot with four days of food and some surplus gear to be used on the return journey. The idea was to travel as light and as fast as possible once they reached the Antarctic Plateau. On December 17th, Frank Wilde would make a discovery, and that was coal. While it doesn't affect our story, it was a not insignificant scientific discovery. It was the first time coal had been found on the continent, and it showed that Antarctica was once part of a large, ancient landmass in a warm, swampy environment. And so Shackleton, even without trying, had made a scientific discovery. The push up the glacier would continue, and it was a difficult one, but they slowly went higher and higher. 
On Christmas Eve, the expedition would abandon one of the two sledges as they simply didn't need it anymore. And then on Christmas, the four men would celebrate. They had been saving a little of their daily rations for a big feast. They had a double portion of pemmican, pony meat, plum pudding, brandy, cocoa, and cigars. There was even a spoonful of creme de menthe for each of them. For the first time in weeks, the men had a full stomach. Now, despite the feast, the men were struggling. The altitude was about 9,500 feet, or 2,900 meters, and it was a strain to breathe the dry air. Headache, nausea, shortness of breath were routine parts of their day. Also, Dr. Marshall had found that the men's body temperatures were now two degrees colder than normal. And to top it all off, there was the cold and the wind. It was at times overwhelming. As the men lost weight, they struggled to stay warm, and they all fought, at least at times, a sense of hopelessness. Frank Wilde would write, quote, May none of my worst enemies spend their Christmas in such a dreary, godforsaken place as this. End quote. Now, despite the difficulties, Shackleton remained optimistic with the men, and he had grown as a leader, becoming more calm and measured over time. He even spoke openly and honestly with the men about the problems facing them and his plans. He was not like Scott, who played such things close to the fest. Jameson Adams came to admire and respect Shackleton for his resilience and calmness and capacity for strength in such difficult conditions, saying Shackleton was the, quote, greatest leader that ever came to God's earth, bar none, end quote. That's some pretty hefty praise. Even the grumpy Marshall grudgingly admitted that Shackleton had a real talent for inspiring others. Shackleton laid out his plans to the men. They were 280 miles, or 450 kilometers, from the South Pole. The nearest depot behind them was 60 miles away, or 100 kilometers. That meant that they had to cover 620 miles, or 1,000 kilometers, to reach the pole and get back to the depot. They had about four weeks of food. This meant 22 miles, or 35 kilometers a day. They had not traveled 22 miles in any single day the entire journey south. Thus, food rations would be cut again. Seven days of food were again stretched to 10 days. Now they had to cover about 15 miles a day, still a huge reach. To help with the push south, all non-essential gear was left on the glacier. They would go as light as possible, including using only one tent. But it was still not easy, as hauling a 150-pound load of provisions on a sledge up a mountain at 10,000 feet exhausted the men quickly. At the end of December, the slow, steady rise up Beardmore Glacier would come to an end as the surface flattened and before the men was pure whiteness. This was the Antarctic Plateau. It had taken the men a month to ascend the glacier. The Antarctic Plateau is a massive area of East Antarctica that extends over a diameter of about 620 miles, or 1,000 kilometers. The average height of the plateau is about 9,800 feet, or 3,000 meters. The team now faced some new challenges. First, this was summertime, and the snow was soft, making hauling the sledge, and even walking, a difficult slog. Second, the cold and wind was brutal on the open plateau. This meant the men's health issues only worsened. They were suffering from bouts of giddiness, dizziness, headaches, and nosebleeds. Shackleton was plagued by terrible migraines, but he pushed through them. It did not help that the clothing the men wore was not adequate for the plateau. Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen had recommended using furs, like those of the Eskimos and the Inuit of the north. These were naturally wicking, and when a person sweated, it absorbed the moisture instead of letting it coat the person's body, and then freeze once they stopped exerting themselves. Instead, Shackleton and his team were wearing woolen garments. Only their gloves, footwear, and sleeping bags were made of fur. On December 29th, Marshall would take the men's temperatures and find their bodies were 3 degrees below normal. A person's body temperature is normally around 98 to 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit. A person is suffering from hypothermia when the body temperature falls below 95 degrees. 
At that point, the body is losing heat faster than it can produce it. It can lead to a slowdown of body functions and mental confusion. And in all of this, we can't forget the cold. Despite being the summer, it was brutal. Temperatures of negative 25 degrees Celsius or negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit were common. And when you add in the winds, it could plummet to negative 45 degrees Celsius or negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Frostbite was a constant danger. The next day, December 30th, a snowstorm struck and the men made only 4 miles or 6 kilometers. Still, they would be off again the following day, covering more than 12 miles or 19 kilometers. On New Year's Day 1909, Shackleton, Wilde, Marshall, and Adams stood at the highest altitude of any man in history, beating American Robert Perry when they went beyond 87 degrees 6 minutes south. Despite the accomplishment, the South Pole was seriously in doubt. They just weren't covering enough ground. In fact, Marshall would recommend turning around. The dwindling food supply and their deteriorating health meant reaching the pole was unlikely. But Shackleton wasn't ready to give up, not just yet. The team would push on the next day, making 10 miles in 10 hours of soft snow that often went up to their knees. Shackleton now admitted that reaching the pole wasn't a realistic option. Or, I should say, reaching the pole and getting back was not realistic. But if they kept going too much further, they would never make it back. Shackleton was not interested in dying gloriously. He was a survivor. And he certainly didn't want the deaths of Wilde, Marshall, and Adams on his conscience. When Marshall checked the men's body temperatures, it didn't register on the gauge, which only went down to 94 degrees. Thus, he would say this of the situation, quote, I must look at the matter sensibly and consider the lives of those who are with me, end quote. And with that, the dream of reaching the South Pole was done. But that did not mean that they were going to turn around, at least not yet. On January 4th, the team would make another depot so that there was less to pull. Shackleton decided that they would bring the barest of supplies and see how far that they could get. Two days later, on January 6th, a blizzard would confine the men to their tent for two days. Winds of 90 miles per hour, or 145 kilometers per hour, shook the tent. They struggled to stay warm. On January 9th, Shackleton decided to make one final dash forward in an effort to get within 100 miles of the South Pole. He and his three companions would put some chocolate sticks and a few biscuits in their pockets and go as far as they could. The only extra items they brought were a compass, a camera, and the Union Jack given to Shackleton by Queen Alexandra. The sledge and tent were left behind. The four pushed hard, leaving in the early hours of the morning. Luckily, the surface was solid, making their trek much more manageable. They would trudge south until 9 a.m. before calling it a day. In front of them was only the featureless white plain of the plateau. They were 97 miles from the South Pole. Marshall calculated the location as 88 degrees, 23 minutes south. Of the moment, Shackleton said, quote, we have shot our bolt, end quote. They raised the Queen's flag and claimed the plateau for King Edward in a short ceremony. Shackleton then took a photo, which showed Marshall, Wilde, and Adams standing next to the flag. In case you are interested, I have put that photo on our website, explorerspodcast.com. The men were exhausted beyond measure and had pressed as far as they dared. Adams later said that if they had gone another hour, they would not have made it back to their camp and would have died. It was quite a feat, to be honest, extraordinary. They had gone 730 miles and had traveled further south than anyone by 366 miles or 590 kilometers. They were the first people to cross the Great Ice Barrier. They had discovered and climbed Beardmore Glacier, another first. In the process, they were the first people to cross the Trans-Antarctic Mountains and stand on the Antarctic Plateau and they had gotten within 100 miles of the South Pole. That is pretty amazing, but let's face it, it was not the South Pole. That had been the great prize. They had needed at least another two to three weeks of food for that. 
I will say that the team had been lucky on their journey, avoiding many pitfalls along the way. However, there were several missed opportunities that would have given them a much better chance at succeeding. The early loss of the ponies slowed the team considerably, and the extra days that the men had been forced to haul the sledges had drained them physically and mentally. And I'll, again, mention the use of the ponies instead of dogs. The ponies cost Shackleton more than ten times what the dogs would have cost, and if he had used dogs and hired an expert handler, all of this might have been different. Another what-if was Shackleton's choice of winter camp. He had done the logical thing and set up base at Camp Royds. However, in bypassing the Bay of Wales, he had added a hundred miles to his pole journey. That hundred miles was the difference between farther south and the South Pole. By the way, Roald Amundsen, who would be the first man to reach the South Pole, used the Bay of Wales as his camp, plus dogs and skis. Just saying. No matter, the deed was done. Ernest Shackleton had just accomplished something no one had ever done, and was a remarkable feat of determination and bravado. I credit Shackleton for not falling into the trap of making a futile run at the pole. Men in that situation often lose sight of reality and can only think of attaining a goal without regard for the cost. And despite not reaching the South Pole, he was proud of what he and his men had done, saying, quote, Whatever regrets may be, we have done our best. End quote. So a new farthest south record was in hand. It was now time for Shackleton and his men to get back. And that is not going to be easy with their food stores low and their health not good. And to add to the problem was the fact of time. It was January 9, 1909. They had six to seven weeks to get back to Cape Royds. Nimrod was scheduled to return, but she had orders to leave Antarctica by March 1st, so she wouldn't get trapped in the ice. And if the ice was bad, she might have to leave even earlier. If that was the case, and Shackled and his team had not returned, Nimrod was to leave food and coal at the camp, along with three volunteers, to spend another year in Antarctica. And that, as you can imagine, is not something Shackleton and his three companions desired. So they had to head back to Ross Island, a distance of 730 miles, and get there within six weeks, maybe seven if they were lucky. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. I initially wanted to cover the entire Nimrod expedition in one episode, but I think this is a good spot to wrap up for this time. So, next episode, we will go with Shackleton as he desperately tries to get back to his camp before Nimrod departs or face another long, cold year trapped in Antarctica. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shackleton's famed Farthest South Journey. I will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Please take care. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.